Rightly Dividing Podcast, Episode 4. chapter 9 and verse number 19 we'll look at just a couple of verses there this morning the Bible says and when he had received meat he was strengthened then was Saul certain days with the disciples which were at Damascus and straightway he preached Christ in the synagogues that he is the son of God But all that heard him were amazed and said, Is not this he that destroyed them which called on this name in Jerusalem and came hither for that intent that he might bring them bound unto the chief priest? But Saul increased the more in his strength and confounded the Jews which dwelt at Damascus, proving that proving that this is very Christ. We'll leave off reading there to bring us uh, up to where we are. Uh, We've seen Saul on the road to Damascus heading to persecute the Christians in continuation of what he had been doing there in Jerusalem. Uh, When he turned the heat up on the Uh, The Christians with persecution going in, hauling them out of their homes, uh, uh, bound and throwing them into prison. uh, uh, They began to disperse and go into other areas around. And so now he is traveling after them into these areas. Uh, We've looked at his conversion experience, the fact that The Lord appeared to him on the road to Damascus as he was heading that way to persecute these Christians. He had papers from the chief priest so he could enter into the synagogues and get them because they would, uh, even though they are now Christians and they're not following uh, all of the laws of Judaism anymore, they are still... uh, very traditional in their manners uh, of, of worship. And so they would be found in the synagogues uh, worshiping. And so he's got these, these letters of authority from the chief priest to, to go in, to give him free reign to go into the synagogues and, and pull these out that are naming the name of Christ, those that are found in the way. At this time, early Christianity was known as the way. And so he's going in looking for those to drag them out and continue the persecution. We saw um, Sunday before last that that after his uh, Damascus Road experience, he was blinded by the Lord and he was staying at, um, at a home on Straight Street The Lord also appeared unto a man named Ananias who is believed to be uh, the leader of the church there at Damascus and appeared to him in a vision 
and uh, told Ananias to go and lay hands on Paul and pray for Paul. Uh, I've shown Paul what he's going to be experiencing uh, as he goes out to proclaim me to the world. Uh, you know, and Ananias is a little bit leery. I mean, you know, he's like, Lord, uh, you got the wrong man, I think. You know, you know who this is, right? You know, he said, this is the man that's killing us. This is the man that's hauling us off to prison. This is the man that hates us. Uh, you know, why are you sending me there? He says, I've got everything under control, the Lord said. You know, don't, don't worry about it. Um, you just do what I tell you. And so the uh, Ananias went, verse 17, went his way and entered into the house and putting his hands on him said, Brother Saul, the Lord, even Jesus, that appeared unto thee in the way as thou camest, hath sent me that thou mightest receive thy sight and, being, and be filled with the Holy Ghost. And immediately there fell from his eyes as it had been scales and received sight forthwith and arose and was baptized. And that brings us to verse 19 where we're at. Um, so he re Saul received um, his um, his sight back, and he was fed and strengthened, and straightway he preached Christ in the synagogues. It said, and he preached that Christ was the Son of God. So. Um, we see here that immediately after uh, he received his sight again and he, he ate and was strengthened, that he began to preach and he began to preach Christ and he began to preach that Christ was the Son of God. Uh, this, as we see through the book of Acts, um, it is, it is a, a history of the early church. It is a book of transition where we're going from uh, the, the law and, and the first part of the kingdom age uh, into the parentheses of the church age. Uh, it's a transitional book for that. We see transitional figures that we've looked at up until this point. And basically what the book of Acts is, is a story of how the praise of God, the, the worship of God, is spreading throughout the known world in the first century. So it's a, a great book to look at to help us see the manners and the methods in which the gospel is being proclaimed to the uttermost parts of the earth. Uh, and it gives us a, a glimpse at how worship should take place. Uh, if we are, if, if our idea of worship is the 11 o'clock hour on Sunday morning, and that's what we look forward to, to worship God 
then our idea of worship is wrong. We are to worship God constantly in, in acts, in what we do, in what we say, in what we eat, as Paul says, in what we drink. I mean, as, as things as, as uh, menial, task as menial, is, is just having food and drink. They're to be done to the glory of God. They're to be done in a worshipful manner. When we work, uh, you know, work is it, it's one of those things that sometimes you enjoy it and other times you hate being there. There are some days that you wished you had... I, there are some days when I walk in the shop and I see what I'm going to work on, I would like to just turn around and walk back out and go back to the house because I know it's going to be a struggle all evening long with that job. And, and we all have days like that. How we go about handling those days speaks a lot about whether we believe what we're doing is worship to God. There are some days that I don't worship as I should, handling those tasks. I don't handle those tasks as well some days as I do others. And there are some days I have to ask for forgiveness because I did not worship the Lord in the way I ought to in performing those tasks and those jobs. There are sometimes there are things that we have to do in our daily life, things that are, are monotonous. You know, you get up, you you get ready for the day, you you know, we, we do our, our tasks that we can go about doing other things. You can get the coffee ready and brush your teeth at the same time because you're used to doing those kind of things and it doesn't require a whole lot of thought and effort. But do we stop and think is this an act of worship? Am I looking at this, this small task as an act of worship? So if we, if we fall into the trap of thinking that the 11 o'clock hour on Sunday morning is when we're supposed to worship God, we're doing it wrong. The book of Acts gives us a glimpse of, of that, that they, they lived to worship that they were able to turn uh, the, the, even the trials and tribulations into an act of worship. And it's a very good book to help inspire us in becoming more worshipful. Worship is the ultimate aim. God's glory what is worship? It's glorifying God. It's giving God the glory that He deserves. It's magnifying God. It's taking and looking at God in a, uh, to magnify Him in a microscopic sense and seeing God in the smallest of the details and it's magnifying God in a telescopic sense and taking something that is larger than life and bringing it into focus so that we can see it more clearly in order to worship it. And so, 
we have pictures throughout this book of worship. And we see that Saul, in his conversion, once he regained his sight here, began to uh, preach Christ and that he was the Son of God. And all that heard him were amazed. They said, is this the same Saul? The same, they had to take double take. You know, that, that can't be him. He's got a, instead of an evil twin, he has a holy twin that's been hiding all these years. Is this the same? They were amazed. They said, is this, is not this he that destroyed them which called on, his, on this name in Jerusalem and came thither for the intent that he might bring them bound unto the... We know what he's here for. And now he's in the synagogue that he come to with papers to drag us out preaching the one that he's fight, been fighting against all these years. So God is using the book of Acts to help ignite a worship and a glorifying of God that he deserves. It, it's lighting the fires of missions. The, the, the mission movement was birthed in the book of Acts with, uh, with Philip the evangelist, with uh, Stephen the martyr, preaching Christ to this group of people that uh, they didn't have a whole lot of dealing with to begin with. And then Philip preaching in Samaria to the Gentiles and the Gentiles receiving Christ and Peter and, and uh, the others preaching there and, and journeying and, and working with those groups that Philip had worked with and they had received Christ and baptized. And then God sending Philip to the desert for one man an Ethiopian eunuch. So we see the birth of a missionary movement in the book of Acts that is following along the lines of where Christ proclaimed them to go into all the world and Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. When we come to realize that it's all about the worship and the glorifying of God, then we can look at things differently. And we can see uh, then that um, how our worship is to play out in our everyday lives. Now Saul was committed, we've seen, to wiping out those that named the name of Christ. Saul was intent on doing everything he could to stop the Christian movement. But we see that the Lord had other plans and that he intervened in the life of Saul in a um, surprising way. 
Not everyone that comes to the saving faith in Christ comes with a Damascus Road experience. We've seen the reason why the Lord dealt with Paul in that way was because he was making an apostle out of him and not just a believer. And so there were other way, there were other things uh, that had to uh, happen in order for Paul to be an apostle. So Jesus deals with him in a dramatic way on the Damascus road. And Paul was blinded, he didn't eat, and he didn't drink for three days after that. Have you ever had uh, something dramatic happen in your life that took your appetite away? That caused you to... Now I know that's hard for us as Baptists to believe, but it can happen. There are things, there are times in your life when you uh, traumatic things happen, dramatic things happen, and we lose our appetite. And Paul, for three days, he didn't eat or drink. Um, basically, his entire world was turned upside down. And we'll see that phrase used later on when we get further into Acts that a group of men the Lord used that were unlearned men that, that had no budgets and no buildings and no bachelor's degrees that God used that group of men to turn the world upside down. But here Paul's world was turned upside down by the living Lord. This Jesus that Paul thought was dead, he found out he was not. Not only was he not dead, but he was in control of things. And Paul said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? He was able to, uh, Jesus was able to Make a light shine in a very dark heart that day on the road to Damascus. He was able to speak audibly to Saul of Tarsus. He was able to put Saul on the ground on his face before him. So we see that this was no dead man, but this was the living Lord. And now Saul's world had been turned upside down in the very place where he was going to destroy more Christians. He became one himself. And he was, he was destroyed and rebuilt that day. You know, in order for construction to take place, deconstruction has to take place first in order for a new building to be uh, erected. There, um, the Bible tells us in the Old Testament 
God deals with Jeremiah and says that he is to root out, tear, tear down, destroy, <coughs> pull up, then plant and grow and rebuild. So there was two-thirds of the things that Jeremiah had to do was what many would view as negative, destruction, uh, deconstruction, tearing down, destroying, wiping out, getting rid of the old. Paul tells Timothy that we are to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. Two-thirds of the things that Paul tells Timothy that we have to do are looked at negatively in this day and time. Now, we can't, uh, we can't focus on uh, tearing someone down. Well, God does it when He needs to rebuild a man. He breaks a man. In order for God to use someone, He has to deconstruct them first. And that's what happened to Paul on the road to Damascus. In order for God to use Paul for God's glory, Paul had to make, or God had to use uh, to make Paul a new man. He had to get rid of Saul of Tarsus to make room for Paul the apostle. And so Paul's whole view of things was destroyed on that road and was rebuilt by Christ Himself. Now we see here in our text that when He regained His sight and was strengthened, He began to preach. And His message was Jesus. And that Jesus is the Son of God. Verse 20, And straightway He preached Christ in the synagogues that He is the Son of God. Now what does that mean? To we hear it all the time. Jesus is the Son of God. What does that mean? Well, first and foremost, it means that He is God. It means that He is God. In Colossians 2.9, Paul says, For in Him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. What does that mean? In Jesus Christ resides all the fullness of the Godhead. What is the Godhead? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. They all reside in all fullness in the incarnate Jesus Christ. In Philippians 2.6, Paul says, Who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Then in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, Hath in these last days spoken unto us by His Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory 
and the express image of His person and upholding all things by the word of His power, when He had by Himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. So Paul, when Paul says Jesus is the Son of God, he is, he is also saying that He is God. As we see from the writings in Colossians and in Philippians, and as we see the author of the book of Hebrews lets us know that not only is He the Son, but in that Sonness is also the fullness of God. And that by Him everything was made. And there are, John tells us in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, the same was it in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. So John lets us know that the Son of God is God. So when Paul is saying and preaching that Jesus is the Son of God, he is preaching that he is God and not a separate person. He's not just a mere man. He's not just a high-ranking angel as some other religions out there teach. He is not uh, the archangel Michael in the flesh, as the Mormons believe. He is not some um, divine teacher of all things good. He is not just uh, some mere mortal. He is truly man and he is truly God. He is 100% man and 100% God. He is the only begotten Son of God. What does begotten mean? It means that you make something of the same kind as yourself. So when Jesus is the only begotten Son of God, He is the same kind as God. And we've seen in our studies that there is nothing else out there like God. We, we can't compare anything on earth to God because there is nothing else on earth like God. So when Paul is preaching that Jesus is the Son of God, we first and foremost have to understand that He is preaching He is God. Then we see that God has a, a love for His Son.
In Colossians, Paul tells us, he describes Christ as the Son of God's love. In Ephesians, chapter 1 and verse 6, to the praise of the glory of His grace wherein He hath made us accepted in the Beloved. There we, we see that God has made us accepted in the Beloved. The Beloved is referring to His Son. And if we come to God, we come to Him through His Son, Jesus Christ. We come to Him accepted in the Beloved. There is no other way. There is no other way to get to God. Jesus proclaimed it Himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by Me. We can't slip in through the back door to get to God. And God has a unique love for His Son. So when we see Paul proclaiming Jesus as the Son of God, we should keep it in our minds, uh, the truth that He is God and that there is a relationship between God the Father and God the Son that is, there is a love there that is different than any other kind of love in the world. And because of that love, we can be accepted in the Beloved. Now we need to see that this is the first thing that Paul proclaims. The first message that he preaches in the synagogues after his conversion is that Christ is the Son of God. Why? Why is that his first message? Why did Luke decide to put it at the beginning of Paul's ministry as he records what's taking place? Because it deserves first place. It deserves first place in any ministry out there. The first and foremost thing that has to be proclaimed is Christ and the fact that Christ is the Son of God. In 1 John 5.12, John tells us, He that hath the Son hath life. And he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. In 1 John 2.23, Whosoever denieth the Son, the same hath not the Father. But he that acknowledgeth the Son hath the Father also. Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5, but when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth His Son made of a woman, made under the law, 
to redeem them that were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. Galatians 2.20 I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So why do you think that's the first message that Paul proclaims when he begins to preach Christ that Christ is the Son of God? Because it is crucial to becoming a Christian. It is the first and foremost thing that we have to grasp and understand who Christ is and what He does. That He is the Son of God. He is God. And the relationship of the love there between the Father and the Son is what leads us to salvation. It is crucial, crucial for our salvation. It's the fact that He came and He died that gives us the gift of salvation, that gives us the gift of adoption, as Paul puts it. So if we confess the Son, if we confess Jesus, we have to confess the Father also. If we proclaim Jesus, we have to proclaim the Father also. And if we have the Son, then we have the Father, John tells us. And if we don't have the Son, then we don't have the Father. And if we have the Father, then we have everlasting life. And not only for this age, but for the ages to come, we have everlasting life. We see that Christ works for us and in us and through us so that our lives should be described as a life of one lived by faith in the Son of God. So it's imperative that that be the first message that Paul proclaims. And it needs to be the first message in our hearts and lives. It needs to be in the forefront of our living. It needs to be the foundation of our lives. It needs to be the chief cornerstone. The, it needs to be uh, made real in our, our minds and in our understanding of that reality that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And it should be our desire for everyone that we know to know that. It, it, how much do we have to hate a person 
to not let them know that. If we truly believe this book and we truly believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and is God manifest in the flesh and that He is the only way to heaven and that that love of the Father up to the Son is manifest in His love toward us and that He is the only way to heaven and that without Him the world is condemned. And if we believe what John says, that if we have the Son, we have the Father, and if we have the Father, we have everlasting life, and if we don't have the Son, we don't have the Father and don't have everlasting life, and the only way to get it is through the Son, how much do we have to hate someone not to give them the Son? How much do we have to hate someone not to live our lives in such a way as to display this before them? It needs to be on the forefront of our minds and our hearts so that those around us would know Christ is the Son of God and to have a personal relationship, a relationship that they trust Him, they rely on Him, they are intimate with Him, that they are saved by Him, that they have the same Father that He has, and that they have life everlasting. To, to know that in order that they might also live a life of worshipful existence. That all that they say and they do points toward the glorification of God. How do we how do we come to that relationship with the Son? How do we keep that in our minds in the forefront? Well, Paul describes his conversion, as we said in the book of Acts, he re- it's, it's relayed th- three times in the book of Acts, and it's alluded to several times in his other writings. And in Galatians 1.16... He says, to reveal His Son in me that I might preach Him among the heathen. Immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood. Neither went I up to Jerusalem to them which were the apostles before me, but I went into Arabia and returned again unto Damascus. So Paul lets us know that that God was, um, in verse 15, but when it pleased God. So it pleased God to reveal Christ in Him. The same uh, Jesus that uh, has been described by the other apostles, this Jesus, it pleased God to reveal in Paul. 
in order that Paul might preach him to the heathen, to the Gentiles, to those that would eventually allow the gospel to be proclaimed to us here this morning. So it's no accident that it happened this way and that that is the first message that Paul proclaims that Christ is the Son of God. He's preaching that God said He is who He is. And that God wants this light to shine out of darkness. In 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. How do others come to this knowledge? Through us. Proclaiming Christ. Proclaiming that He is the Son of God. To shining that light in a dark, dark world. Let's stand for prayer.